From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On this year-end edition of the program, we'll revisit two guests from earlier this year. As women age and reach menopause, many suffer from vaginal atrophy, the thinning, drying, and inflammation of the vaginal walls due to the loss of estrogen. Experts now agree that a more accurate term for vaginal atrophy and the symptoms that go along with it is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic women's health experts. Also on the program, for many who suffer from mental illness, the problem is made worse by the lack of resources available to help. We'll learn where we stand today in treating mental illness. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the North American Menopause Society, up to 45%, according to this organization, 45% of postmenopausal women find sex painful. But fewer than a quarter of those women go to their doctor to try and do something about it. In fact, a survey of women aged 57 to 85, only 22% said they had even discussed their sex lives with their doctors since they turned the age of 50. Well, part of the reason women stay quiet might just be the name used to describe the condition, vaginal atrophy. Oh, boy. To combat the stigma, the NAMS, now once again, that's the North American Menopause Society, and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health have introduced a new medical term called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Well, they were they're hoping that that would encourage more women to seek treatment. Here to discuss GSM is the Director of the Office of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Fabian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Good to see you, Dr. Fabian. And you also have a new title since the last time you were with us. I do indeed. It's the Director of Executive and International Medicine. So uh, do you still work in the Women's Health Clinic or is it all in Executive Health? Three days a week. So renaming vaginal atrophy GSM, do you think that that's going to have an impact on patients and maybe patients more willing to talk about it? I hope so. There were several reasons uh, for that change in the name. First of all, women didn't even really tie what was happening uh, in terms of the vaginal dryness and the pain with sex to menopause itself. So they didn't tie it to those hormonal changes. So uh, the concept was to try to tie it into menopause a little bit. Also, there are a lot of urinary tract symptoms that go along with these hormonal changes at menopause. And so it's not just vaginal dryness, it's urinary frequency, urgency, and even urge leak. Also, women get more urinary tract infections after menopause. So we were trying to tie in the urinary part as well. And then finally, who wants to hear that their genitals are atrophying? That's terrible. Uh, so That's a terrible well, most phrase. Most people don't know what the word atrophy means. Uh, shrinking, shrinking, getting smaller. Uh, so we uh, really wanted to get away from that concept as well. And then we thought sort of an acronym, much like impotence, went to ED, um, changing vaginal atrophy to GSM might be easier to think about, remember, talk about with their doctors. It might not be so intimidating. 45% of postmenopausal women finding sex painful and only a quarter of them going to look for help is a huge problem. It is a huge problem. And, and unfortunately, a lot of medical providers don't really ask that question when women come into the office. They don't ask 
How are things going in terms of sexual functioning? Have you noticed any changes? And, and we ask women every single visit if there's a problem there. But even more so, um, even if women do bring it up with their doctors, only about 9% of women are actually treated with prescription therapies. And we have widely available very effective treatments for this that it just aren't being used. And the reason this happens is all related to hormonal changes. That's correct. So as we go through menopause and we lose estrogen, we lose the beneficial effect of estrogen on the vaginal tissues. So the tissues become thinner and drier and less elastic. And therefore, sex can be not only uncomfortable, but right out straight out painful. Now tell us again why. I mean, it it always uh, made so much sense that if you had all of these symptoms, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, uh, other problems related to menopause, that you would just give women estrogen. And why don't we do that anymore? Well, a lot of women do get estrogen, but as you might remember, that big trial that came out, the Women's Health Initiative study back in 2002, scared a lot of people off hormone therapy, and we went from about 40% of women in the United States using hormone therapy down to roughly 4% now. So there's been a huge decline in the use of hormone therapy, and since that trial, we've sorted out who the best candidates for hormone therapy might be, and it's not everyone. Um, But we have figured out that for most symptomatic women, meaning those with hot flashes, night sweats that are really bothersome, who are in their 50s and within 10 years of that menopausal transition, that hormone therapy, um, the benefits still outweigh the risks for those women. So, And and what were the risks? What scared women about this study? the, The biggest scare, I think, for many women was the breast cancer risk. And that is only with the combination of estrogen and a progestogen. So if women have a uterus, they have to take a progestogen with the estrogen in order to protect that uterine lining from growing too much with the estrogen. And that combination of hormone therapy was is associated with a slightly increased risk of breast cancer, about eight extra cases per 10,000 women per year. But what about the other types of hormone therapy that a woman can take advantage of or, or try to help? So when we're talking about hormone therapy, it's mainly estrogen and progestogen or a, a type of progestin. Um, When we talk about vaginal dryness specifically, we're talking about estrogen only. Uh, And women who are on systemic hormone therapy, meaning they're getting their hot flashes and night sweats treated, they may have enough estrogen then in that systemic treatment to cover the vagina. But we even know that about 10 or 20% of women on systemic hormone therapy, it's not enough to cover the vaginal tissues. And then some women don't have hot flashes and night sweats, but they have vaginal dryness. And for those women... They need some topical local therapy uh, with estrogen just to the vagina. It can be helpful. And so that's a cream or is that a suppository? What is that? Great question. So it comes in several different forms. It comes in uh, two different brands of cream. There's a vaginal tablet that's inserted in the vagina twice a week, and the cream is used twice a week as well. And the last option is a vaginal ring that's inserted in the vagina, stays there three months at a time, and you take it out and put a new one in. So every woman who reaches menopause has a decrease in in hormones and particularly estrogen. Why don't they all have painful uh, sex? Why don't they all get vaginal atrophy? Do you know that? We, we don't know why some women are symptomatic and others aren't. Hmm. So for some women, we can look and see the changes, and it looks like things should be painful, but they aren't. They are not having pain. Uh, some women simply aren't sexually active and really aren't noticing any symptoms. Um, but it's true. Not every woman is going to get symptoms. Only about 60% will have symptoms. 
And as you're talking about symptoms, is does it happen that a woman will have the whole range of symptoms? She will have painful sex. She will have night sweats. She will have hot flashes. Or um, do some women, I have this but not that? Or is it you get the whole wave of them or you get none of them? That's a great question. Uh, I'm just asking for a a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got you there. Uh, There's a lot of variety in the way women present with menopausal symptoms, and there's also the timing issues. So we know that vaginal dryness doesn't typically come on right away. So women can get hot flashes early, and in fact, even before their last menstrual period, they can be having hot flashes. But the vaginal symptoms typically come on about 12 to 18 months after the last menstrual period. So they're a little bit later in relationship to the hot flashes. And no, you you don't necessarily get all or none. Uh, It can be some, but not everything. And we should probably talk more about, before we ever get to hormone therapy, there's some things that women can try before they even see their local providers um, when they're starting to have some of these vaginal dryness symptoms. Such as? So the over-the-counter lubricants and moisturizers are a good first step for women who are starting to notice some dryness changes. And uh, lubricant moisturizer 101, lubricants are for sexual activity. And moisturizers, think of it as face cream for the vagina. That's used on a regular basis every second or third t- day to help maintain the moisture. Okay. All right, face cream for the vagina. <laughs> yeah, that's a great All way right. to put it. We're talking about uh, menopause with Dr. Stephanie Fabian, and we've certainly covered the subject of vaginal atrophy, not known as vaginal atrophy anymore, but now called, let me see if I got this right, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. All right, we need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about menopause. We'll talk about heart disease in menopausal women and prevention, plus some comments on memory, sleep, and mood. And also, myth or matter of fact, the risk for heart disease rises after menopause. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our topic is menopause, and our guest works in the in the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo, and she is also Director of Executive and International Health at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Let's talk about myth or matter of fact, Dr. Fabian. The risk for heart disease rises after menopause. Is that a myth or a fact? That is a fact, unfortunately. So before menopause, women are not as high risk for heart disease as men are, but after menopause, we're in the same boat with the men. So our risk risk um, for developing heart disease really increases after that menopausal transition, and that probably does have quite a bit to do with losing estrogen, which seems to have a protective effect on our vessels, but it's also a function of aging in general. Those hormones are pretty important, aren't they? They are vital. So when uh, to refer back to what the previous part of our conversation where you were saying in the early 2000s when women were on a lot of different those hormones, and then we realized maybe not so much, that is a big reversal for women's health care, wasn't it? Is that a good way to put it or not? Well, I, th- I think so, because back in, back in those days, we actually were recommending that hormone therapy be used as a preventive for heart disease, mm-hmm. and that is no longer the case. We are not recommending it as a preventive for heart disease. Um, however, just because of the of the potential side effect of of some women getting breast cancer because n- they take it, or, no, or why? No, for for its effect on the heart specifically. Yeah, well, why not anymore? Well, back in the Women's Health Initiative days, okay, so that study um, was 
a large study with a lot of women in it. The average age was 63. And they basically took women who were between the ages of 50 and 79 years of age, and they put them on hormone therapy. They weren't symptomatic. This was just to see if hormone therapy worked in terms of prevention. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that women in their 50s did not have an increased risk of heart disease. And in fact, it trended downward a little bit. But women in their 60s and 70s who were put on estrogen therapy had an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. Mm -hmm. And so while we know that, again, for women in their 50s, this seems to be a safe option, when you're starting hormone therapy at a later age, when you may already have some existing heart disease in your blood vessels, um, then putting you on hormone therapy at that time may actually aggravate the situation. It's interesting that uh, for the generation ahead of us, everybody just suffered through menopause together and they just dealt with it for help from their girlfriends. You know, you just kind of leaned on each other. And now women uh, in their 50s or around menopausal age are encouraged to go and talk with their doctors about things like managing your hot flashes or GSM. And that's a that's a big shift in women's health care, too. Well, I think it's great. It's encouraging to me to see that women are seeking care now. But if you think about it, menopause and living 40 or 50 percent of our lives after menopause is a new phenomenon. Um, we had a life expectancy of 50 years in 1900, so women didn't live past menopause in the last century. This is a new deal for us. This is a brave new world. We're in new territory here. So uh, it's not even so much about just taking good care of your health. It's your quality of life that we're talking about. It's absolutely. We just don't want to live longer. We want to live healthier and live better. So this is really about maintaining your health after menopause in this second half of your life, if you will. When you see women uh, who... Uh reach menopause and come in to see you, what's their chief complaint? What's the number one thing you hear from women who are who have just reached menopause? That's a great question. Okay, well, there are a couple. So hot flashes are probably the most common complaint, but the ones that bother women the most, the weight and their mood. So yeah. those are the symptoms that really bug women the most, but the most common symptom is actually the hot flashes. What do you mean their mood? So, so women get a lot of mood changes around menopause. It's really you common the stink to have. Eye it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, watch it. I know you're wife. Yeah, <laughs> women can get um, moodiness, so up and down on the emotions, but also anxiety is a big problem around menopause. And women who have never ever had a mood issue before may actually have a little bit of a mood issue going through menopause. But women who have had mood issues that relate to hormones like premenstrual syndrome, mood issues, or baby blues after they've delivered a baby, or even postpartum depression, those women are much more vulnerable to these mood changes around menopause. Um, And women who have real mood issues, like a major depression, uh, tend to have significant problems during this time. that's relatively new information for people to hear, that depression can be one of the symptoms of menopause. Right. And whether it's directly related to hormones or a combination of hormones and genetics and life circumstances and stressors is is probably a a mix of things. We probably should uh, just put in a quick plug for the last time you were here. It was for the new menopause book that you have that Mayo Clinic has put out. And so Tell people where they can where they can pick that up. It's the Menopause Solution, and it's widely available wherever books are sold. But uh, MayoClinic.org is also a resource. Flying off the shelves. Flying off the shelves. So tell us how you approach women who come in complaining of those two problems that you just mentioned: weight gain and uh, mood issues. 
Well, so with the weight gain, and that's a, a touchy one, um, there are many reasons why we tend to put on a little weight at menopause, and not all of them are hormone-related. But there is definitely a shift downward in metabolism. We tend not to move as much after menopause. We're losing a little bit of muscle mass every year, so we're burning fewer calories from that direction. And then the hormone-driven part is that every little last bit of fat you have redistributes to the midsection. So the most important thing for women to know is, one, you're not, you're not imagining this. This is really <laughs> happening. Um, and two, it's important to find your new balance. What was working before isn't working now, and you've got to find the new how, where you balance out and you're not gaining weight, and that's going to be a little less in and a little more exercise. You don't need to get a new mirror. It is the real you. Yeah, unfortunately. I want to throw my scale out the window right now. But, but it's you know working. what? That's funny that he says that it is the real you. I mean, it does. some days feels like the body snatchers has come in and somebody else is standing here in my shoes. I, this is a common complaint. I hear it in my office all the time. But our bodies are changing. It, this is the reality. And there's no magic pill, hormone, or otherwise to make that go back. So it's also being accepting of the aging process in some way. Not to say that you shouldn't oh. fight the weight gain, but... That's a great way to put it. And, you know, we are talking about this. There's the book that's available. The Women's Health Clinic is there. So you do have people that are coming in. But what about the people who are listening right now that have never talked to their doctor about this part of their lives? What do you want them to know? I, I just want women to know that there's help out there and there's a lot of information out there that's available. And a good resource, as you mentioned, is the North American Menopause Society and the book. Um, but there are so many helpful resources out there for women and they, they need to go to a reputable source and then get some help. And some of these things we can really do lots of things about. Others are just learning acceptance and mindfulness and stress management and all the things you know you're supposed to be doing, like sleeping well and eating a healthy diet and exercising. So in the mood issues, do you just tell women, take it out on your spouse? Or how, how do you help the... Well, the, the mood issues are, are can be complicated, and hormone therapy actually can be helpful for mood issues, but we right. don't start it usually just for mood. Um, but women who are having a more significant problem than that need to make sure that they see their providers. Does that even out once you are in menopause? It's oh, the, I remember one of the first things you told me is that it's the trip into menopause that is terrible once you're in things stable out a little bit. They do tend to stabilize because you no longer have those hormonal fluctuations that are going crazy right around that menopausal transition. So it does tend to work itself out after menopause. So things do get better. Uh, you know, it's it's so good that you're addressing all these problems and helping women who are postmenopausal because obviously we all change and everybody gets older and everybody's living longer. If we're lucky. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Fabian, she works in the Women's Health Clinic, is also Director of Executive and International Health at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Fabian. Thanks so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear about the latest challenges in treating mental illness. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Knee pain from osteo or wear and tear arthritis is very common. Two out of three people will develop it by the time they're 85. Experts at Mayo Clinic found a new way to reduce that pain using a patient's own stem cells. We now have a safe 
and viable alternative for treating joint pain that could prove to work for several months or even years. Dr. Shane Shapiro says stem cells are the building blocks of tissues in our bodies. They can go on to form things like bone, ligament, cartilage, things that make up the joints in our body. This procedure involves removing stem cells from a patient's blood marrow and then re-injecting them into the knee. Dr. Shapiro's study found it safe and effective and offers great hope for the future. This is very important because it forms the basis for our future clinical trials as we try to regrow cartilage for knees that have osteoarthritis. Reducing pain and restoring quality of life through regenerative medicine. Let's talk about nosebleeds. They are very common. The lining of your nose contains many tiny blood vessels that lie close to the surface and are easily damaged. The two most common causes of nosebleeds are dry air. When your nasal membranes dry out, they're more susceptible to bleeding and infections, and nose picking. Many people have occasional nosebleeds, particularly younger children and older adults. And although nosebleeds may be scary, they're generally only a minor annoyance and aren't dangerous. Now, most nosebleeds aren't serious and will stop on their own or by following these self-care steps. Sit upright and lean forward. Gently blow your nose to clear out any clotted blood, and you could spray a nasal decongestion in the nose, too. Pinch your nose. Now, if the bleeding doesn't stop, repeat the steps for up to a total of 15 minutes. Do seek emergency medical care if nosebleeds happen after an injury, such as a car accident, if they involve a greater-than-expected amount of blood, if they interfere with breathing, last longer than 30 minutes even with compression, or the nosebleed occurs in children younger than age 2. And in other news, the U.S. Surgeon General says e-cigarettes are a public health threat to youth. In a new report, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy lists the dangers of e-cigarettes and outlines the strategies to help combat the problem of tobacco use among the nation's youth. Murthy says tobacco use is not safe in any form, including e-cigarettes. He adds that the rate of vaping among youth has increased at an alarming rate, and e-cigarettes may introduce young people to other tobacco products, possibly making them lifetime users. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, here is a rather startling statistic. One in five Americans lives with a mental health condition. Now, that's according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Of course, mental illness does refer to a whole range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, your thinking, your behavior. Examples of mental illness include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. Here to discuss mental illness and the challenges facing us today is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Teresa Rummins. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rummins. Thank you. So we want to talk about mental illness and mental illness as we understand it in 2016 in America. But And first of all, explain to us what this what this term encompasses. When, we say, when you say mental illness, what are you really talking about? Well, mental illness really is defined as a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder and actually doesn't include the substance use disorders, which most people think that it does. And so when you really talk about mental illness, you're talking about only a subset of the things that we oftentimes really refer to as, as all of the mental illnesses. But when we say one in five Americans has a mental illness, does that include the ones uh, who are abusing substances? No, it doesn't. So that's even more. So it's wow. really one in three Americans are affected by either mental illness or substance abuse. So that means that 
everyone in this country is affected by it. It's either yourself, one of your loved ones, or one of your friends. One in three. How long have you got? (laughs) Recently, uh, I've heard the phrase mental, speaking about people's mental health, instead of focusing on mental illness. Mm -hmm. So kind of talking about it in a different way. Is that something that's consciously being done, or am I just picking up on that? Well, of course, that's a positive kind of a spin, and we all want to hope that we have good mental health. But I think that... uh, Unfortunately, the facts reveal that there are a number of people who have mental illness. And mental illness is no different than any other medical condition, uh, which has been a real problem for those who have been stigmatized by having mental illness versus having a medical illness like a cardiovascular illness or diabetes. Has this one in three or even one in four or one in five people uh, uh, who have mental illness or substance abuse, has that remained fairly steady over the decades or, or are there a lot more mentally ill people today than there used to be? Well, you know, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure that we really know at this point. Um, there was a huge epidemiological project that was done back in the 80s, which came up with the, the information back then um, that basically one in five with mental illness and one in ten with a substance abuse, which means then one in three basically have a mental illness or a substance abuse. And I think, you know, um, it's hard to know really what's going on. I think clearly... Uh, the issues with substance use disorders has skyrocketed. Uh, you, everyone's reading about it in the paper right now with the opioid epidemic that's going on, and there's a lot of synthetic agents that were not even present back in the back in the 80s. So uh, I would suspect that it's probably even more common than we really realize. But why is, do you think that is? Oh, I think it's multifactorial. I don't think there's just one cause for it. I think. Uh, more and more is expected of people faster and faster, and the stress levels are high, and people try to escape from some of it. I think that's part, a big part of what's going on with the substance use disorders. Um, I think there's, uh, as I said before, it's multifactorial. I think you know, some of the government regulations that uh, no patient should ever have pain and that physicians were going to be measured on pain and then reimbursed on pain has really contributed to the opioid epidemic. Uh, So we've gone too far the other direction. So the physicians Mm -hmm. were criticized uh, for a while because they weren't doing a good job controlling people's pain, and now we're giving out too much pain medication. Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, That's that's the fact. (laughs) And what about uh, depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia? Are those more common, or are they just being better diagnosed now? Uh, I think it's mixed. I think that, you know, probably the psychotic disorders are being, um, which would be schizophrenia, are probably being diagnosed better. But I think depressive disorders are mixed. I think maybe major depression and bipolar disorder that are, have real true biological underpinnings, there's no evidence to suggest that they're dramatically changing in, in prevalence. But stress disorders that produce um, milder depression, now, that could be on the rise. And what about, you just said, the biological um, piece. Does the study of genetics right now at this time in medicine, is that contributing to some of that, figuring it out a little bit more often? We wish. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's not there yet. Hmm. How do we compare with the rest of the world uh, that's in a, terms of mental illness? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, the, the statistics are that probably you know one in eight people worldwide uh, have a psychotic disorder. But there's, you know, the third world nations, there's just no, there are no um, folks on the ground to really be able to measure 
the existence of certain mental illnesses. But there are some things that um, that the U.S. has unfortunately um, really uh, taken over, and one of the big ones is opioid use. The opioids are used, um, 80% of the world's opioids are used in the United States. Wow. So when you say uh, psychotic or psychosis, you're referring to the most severe kind of, of mental illness, and you said one in eight people worldwide. But what are the specific diseases that fit into that category of a of psychosis? Uh, schizophrenia is one. Drug-induced psychosis can be another, uh, what we call schizoaffective, which is kind of a combination between schizophrenia and depression, mood s- substances. So there's a whole lot, there's a whole range of, of disorders that can be part of the psychotic disorders. And let's say depression is probably the, mo- the most mm-hmm. common, other than substance abuse, right? Uh, of the of the mental illnesses, true? Actually, anxiety is the most common. And then are. are are those neuroses, or how do you tell the difference? What's the difference between a psychosis and a neurosis? Well, those Boy. are the old terms. I'm not sure anybody <laughs> uses the term neurosis anymore. Well, see, time, I went but. to medical school a long time ago, I guess. <laughs> well, you don't use those terms anymore. Uh, not neurosis. Uh-uh. No, all but, right. Um, the psychotic disorders are the ones where um, individuals have a real distortion of their thinking. Uh, severe paranoia, delusional thinking. Um, they can have perceptual distortions where they're hearing things, seeing things that other people aren't hearing and seeing. Those are the psychotic disorders. They oftentimes can happen with other neurologic problems or medical conditions, you know, such as very, very severe Alzheimer's disease or dementing illnesses. People will then start developing psychotic problems, and that's why you see the numbers high worldwide because they're oftentimes associated with medical conditions or other medications. Steroids can produce psychotic disorders. A lot of the substances that are abused can produce psychotic disorders. And what what is the anxiety disorders? Is that being more easily or more often diagnosed? Or why the increase in the anxiety disorder diagnoses? I'm not sure that they've increased. They've just always been high number. When they went back and did the big study that was NIH-sponsored back in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was the number one mental illness, not substance mm. abuse, but mental illness then. Generalized anxiety, panic disorder, um, post-traumatic stress disorder falls into that category or, or did. Obsessive compulsive disorder fell into that category. Mm. So there are a number of different disorders that fall into the anxiety disorder category. All right. And one other comparison, Minnesota is compared to the rest of the country. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a really good question because that, uh, Minnesota, um, as progressive as the state is, is fallen way, way, way behind when it comes to really providing the type of care for the severely met, uh, mentally ill. Really? On substance abuse, Minnesota is 50 out of 50 states in the union for the number of psychiatric beds per capita. Um, the typical type of um, numbers that people say could really be helpful to be able to meet the needs of the mentally ill is usually 50 beds per 100,000. Minnesota has 3.9 beds per 100,000. We are the worst state in the union. As a result of that, Tom, we have people sitting in our emergency rooms across the state, not for hours, not for days, not for weeks, but for months. 
just sitting in the emergency room waiting to be able to be transferred to a hospital where they can start getting ongoing care. Well, that alone is pretty depressing. Where are all our tax dollars going? Can't figure oh, it out. That's a different show. That's <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. We're that's talking exactly about right. mental illness with psychiatrist Dr. Terry Rummins. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Most people born with depression never seek treatment. Is that a myth or a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about mental illness in America with Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Terry Rummins. Dr. Rummins, myth or matter of fact? Most people with depression never make it to treatment. They never seek treatment. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, it's kind of complicated because those with mental illness, not just depression, only 40% 40 of individuals who have a mental illness or substance abuse will actually get care. So if you're going to broaden depression to include all of mental illness and substance abuse, then you're absolutely correct because only 40% will really receive treatment. uh, I want to ask you, Terry, there has been a significant increase in life expectancy over the past few decades in the United States. Now, men and women on average are living to be about 79 years of age. But recently, the CDC said that there's actually been a decrease in life expectancy, and I think it was particularly true among white women. I want to know if opioid use, alcohol use, other mental issues have anything to do with this. You're absolutely right. And the three main reasons that there's been a decrease in life expectancy in the U.S. in the last few years are related to three primary things. One is suicide, one is firearm deaths, and the other are motor motor vehicle deaths. Uh, Suicide is self-explanatory. That's that's associated with mental illnesses and substance use. The thing that I think people could be very surprised about is firearms. Because of the way the media produces a, a lot of hype around homicides, most people would think that most firearm deaths are related to homicides. Surprisingly, that is not the case. Two-thirds of deaths by firearms are suicide. So that's another major Mm. mental health substance use disorder. And you can imagine, I know the statistics are trying to be uh, accrued at the CDC, but they haven't been publicized yet. But if you look at the motor vehicle accidents that result in death, probably the majority of them are associated with somebody that's that's associated with that accident having been using some type of substance. Uh, so Although texting may overtake that substance. You're absolutely correct in the, in the future. But right now, and with this data that has the life expectancy decreasing, all three of the major causes for the decrease in life expectancy have some association with mental health or substance use disorders. Another interesting fact is the, you know, just the health impact of mental illness and substance abuse. You know, the ten leading causes of death that are rising versus those that are decreasing, like cancer deaths are decreasing. But there are 10 conditions where the actual death rates are increasing, such as um, unintentional injury, COPD, strokes, Alzheimer's, drug overdoses, suicide, firearms, uh, being septic or having a major infection, liver disease, and homicide. Of those 10 things, eight of them, 80% of them are associated with mental illness or substance use disorders. So they are having a huge impact, um, uh, you know, worldwide. Even just the suicides alone have increased by 25% in the last 15 years. Suicides have increased by by 25% in the last 15 years. You were talking about uh, the financial impact of mental health 
mental illness, and those things would fall into that category for sure. No, absolutely. The cost for mental illnesses and substance abuse in the last 15 to 20 years last 15 to 20 years have tripled um, while all the other conditions all the medical conditions that we're always talking about whether it's cardiovascular cancer whatever else have not even doubled so you can just see that the impact that we're having not just from an individual standpoint life expectancy but financial impact and then so there's huge social impact as well you know you were saying about uh, texting overtaking uh, drugs or drinking during driving right. overtaking I think you could maybe make an argument that there is a mental health aspect in that, in that some people can't, it's almost anxiety if they are kept away from their smartphone or their device, or they're not able to have that texting ability right there. Unfortunately, we were born in an era where we didn't have to worry about <laughs> that. But it is a it. huge right. problem, no question about yeah. it. Is, is mental illness age related? Does the fact that people are living longer have anything to do with the increasing incidence of mental illness? Is it more common as we age? No, surprisingly, it's not. It's less common unless you want to exclude, you know, if we're excluding the neurocognitive disorders, the dementing illnesses. It's actually less common um, as you get older than it is in the youth. It's really the highest incidence is in is primarily in youth. And even when you just look at the suicide numbers overall, um, the suicide rates, uh, it's a tenth leading cause of death in the U.S. period. Suicide, uh, tenth leading cause yep, of death? Right. Wow. But it, but for those that are 10 to 24 years old, it's the third leading cause of death. It's the second leading cause of death for those that are 15 to 24. And then those are much older, it's, 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 it's less. So you can see it has a huge impact. Just suicide alone has a huge impact on our young people. All right, we've got, what, a minute and 20 seconds mm-hmm. remaining, so what do we do? What's well, the answer to all this? It, it's sort of frightening. It is frightening, but I think that there are, you know, there are really three things that can happen. One of them is what we're doing right now, and that's really trying to educate people about the facts. There's a lot of myths, as mm-hmm. you guys brought up earlier, uh, about what mental illness and substance abuse is or are and are not. Um, and so I think educating people about the actual facts is extremely important. Second is recognizing that it's a real problem. This is a real, genuine problem that is not going to go away and can't just be kind of pushed over into a corner. And then finally, acknowledging that we have to do something about it, and it's all of our responsibilities. It's not just the mental health provider's responsibility. It's just not law enforcement's responsibility or uh, faith-based community's responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities. And I think if we all work together, the government, health care, and community uh, types of groups, uh, we can make a difference. It sounds like in the state of Minnesota, we need to write our congressmen and women about the problem of mental illness right here in Minnesota that it sounds like it's not being very well taken care of. Absolutely, especially when it uh, when it uh, involves really the needed placement uh, hospital beds for those that are very ill. Because what's happened since the 1960s when Kennedy, meaning well, wanted to close many of the uh, state psychiatric hospitals and hoping that we would have community hospitals and community centers, which did not uh, really uh, manif- really develop, uh, what's happened is that individuals who were being cared for in mental hospitals now are either being ki- cared for in jails and prisons, or they're out on the streets and homeless. Dr. Terry Romans, Mental Illness in America, 2016. Thanks so much for being with us. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.